The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Gawel. I'm Esteban Gomez. I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli. And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place. Three, two, one, and liftoff. Lift off. And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid. And others don't. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors, from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds, are human acts of reclamation. That was according to the wishes of the descendant community. We are Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org. The idea of home is often presented as stable, comfortable, and fixed. This imagination has a lot to do with food, as home is supposed to be the place where food is always somewhat predictable and hardly ever scarce. Conversations about Indian food often reinforce the assumption that home is a stable place and the Indian nation-state is a fixed entity in which all are equal, rights-bearing citizens. But a podcast on Indian food is not complete if we don't destabilize this assumption, as India is for the people who occupy it a different imagination with distinct advantages and limitations. This episode is about Tibetans in exile, most of who live in India. It's about how food and memory work to create or disrupt notions of home. It traces the story from 1959 onwards, the year in which China invaded Tibet. This moment gave birth to a Tibetan uprising that is continuing to gain traction till this day. This is Bad Table Manners, a show that seeks to push the boundaries of food reporting and narrative in South Asia. I'm your host, Meher Varma. In this episode, I speak to three Tibetans in exile about the experiences of creating imaginary homelands, both in India and in the West, and what role food plays in this experience. Screenwriter and fellow podcaster, Jamyang Punsok is one of my guests. 
me personally, yeah, home will always be Tibet. And then, ironically, it's a home that I've never seen. Tensho Gyatso, who runs a Tibetan food blog called Simply Tibetan, spoke with me about her blog and one particular ingredient called Sampa. Tibetans, especially in political contexts, are sometimes referred to as the Sampa eaters. Sampa is roasted barley flour and it is a Tibetan staple. Tibetans have begun to use it as a term when we reference ourselves because it puts us, sets us apart from all our neighbors because we're the, when we say Tsampa eaters, it's no one else who eats Tsampa. Chinese don't eat Tsampa. It gives us a separate identity. My guest Nima Dorji is a Tibetan who was born in India and is one of the few Tibetans I know who has had a chance to return to his homeland. He now lives in Canada where he's a professional engineer. But when he's not at work, he's deep in culinary experiments and making tsampa is one of them. But before I get into that, I asked Nima to give me a little historical context. According to Nima, if you ask most Tibetans how many of their people are in exile, they'll say 6 million. But as Nima points out, with just a touch of humor, this response has been the same forever, meaning that it's inaccurate. This is another testament to how the life of a Tibetan is bound up with the state of being undocumented. This state means that the work of every day is to assimilate while also keeping a Tibetan identity alive. Nima's description of Tibetan settlements in India describe this duality. So when the Tibetans first came into India, they ended up building the roads because India as newly independent in the frontier areas didn't have the motorable roads into those areas. And so Tibetan refugees served as a great purpose. So the settlements came about in some of those where the work camps, right? So you'll find one on the way to Manali, for instance, where the work camp settlement or the places where they sort of put temporary spot became more of a permanent settlement over time. And then you have in Delhi, much of the Gatilla area, right, which also became a temporary spot initially to the point where a thriving community has developed over the last 60 years. But by and large, these are places that have become a center of culture. And I understand in many cases now a bit of a tourist attraction for the Indians as well. Many Indians who live in urban cities know of these Tibetan settlements as places where you get scrumptious, affordable food. It wouldn't be uncommon for Indians to in fact associate, or at the worst of times, reduce a Tibetan neighborhood to the momo, which is essentially a steamed dumpling that, in its original form, is stuffed with seasonal vegetables or meats. So, while the fact that you do get amazing food in these locales is undeniably true, this reduction erases struggle that produces these settlements in the first place, and what Tibetans in exile actually had to negotiate as they attempted to create their own ideas of food culture. What's interesting, I think, with food and the Tibetan food, if you will, is that there are, again, different iterations that have come through for Tibetans in India. For most of us raised in India, for most of us who were born in India in the early days, the introduction to quote-unquote Tibetan food for us was really what we would popularly call dingwon dal, right? Which is basically a steamed bun and dal, even though neither really had much to do with Tibet as such, but it became what was available and easily made and provided as food. Once 
things got a bit better than Jingmo, which often the steam bun made from Atta, often because that was available, and so it didn't really rise that well. So it became this hard <laughs> bun, hot dough. Uh, got replaced with rice and dal, so rice and dal became a bit better. One of the larger points of Tencho's blog, Simply Tibetan, is to introduce people to the diversity of Tibetan foods and also to get people to see why the staples, like momos, became staples. Momos are practical foods that were adaptable and would feed many. These qualities are key for a nomadic population. I think momos and tukpa are probably one of the easy ones to make. And Tibetans are quite enterprising in that sense, I feel. As refugees, when they came out, many of them also started opening little restaurants. And in the restaurants, uh, that's what they would serve is tukpa and momo. And then that's how it became popular. They are actually quite easy to make and easy to serve and sell. So probably that's why. And now we have momo stores everywhere. The ingredients are very, very simple for the, both these two items. For tukpa, you take wheat and then you make noodles out of whatever flour you have. You put flour and water together, you knead it, and then you flatten it and you make tukpa out of it. And then for the stock, it just depends whatever ingredient uh, is available, you use it. So if you have meat, you use meat to make the stock. If you have vegetables, you any kind of vegetable, you know, cook it up and you make a soup out of it and you throw the tukpa in it. So it's very, very easy to make, healthy, feeds a lot. And then even for the momos, the dough, the skin is just, again, flour and water. And the filling can be anything that's handy. From Nima's brief description about the Indianization of Tibetan food and Tencho's descriptions of adaptability, it is clear that authenticity is always being invented. I was curious, though, about whether there was an expressed aversion to this bastardization or if it was somehow seen as inevitable. I don't see mixing and the adaption or introduction of ingredients as necessarily changing it. I think food that sort of, a, if you will, evolves, right, with available ingredients. I think it's only more in the recent time now with the availability of greater diversity of available ingredients and transport that we are now trying to get back at looking at some of what might have been authentic food in traditional pastoral sort of communities. But the issue also, though, for many of the Tibetans raised in exile is that they have no memory of Tibet. If you think about the Tibetans who are in India today, even the ones in leadership or the senior roles, anybody, let's say, under the age of 65 or 70, would either not have any memory of Tibet or have a childhood memory of Tibet. As I mentioned earlier, Nima is a fortunate Tibetan who did have a chance to visit his home. I asked him to describe what he learned about his food when he was there. What I learned through his response is that practicality and access lie at the heart of what Tibetan food is, which means that it's a food that's constantly evolving. This is an important thing to keep in mind, as so often the Western imagination of Tibetan food, or foods from radically different cultures, is that they are ancient and timeless. I'll talk more about the orientalization of Tibetan food a bit later. 
While all three of my guests had different relationships to what constitutes real Tibetan food in Tibet, all three of them mentioned that it's Sampa that unites them. For Nima, it's a food that he's had a changing relationship to over the years. I ask him what he feels when he hears Tibetans refer to as the Sampa eaters, especially in political rallies or protests. Yeah, Sampa has sort of been important in that. It's been a quite an important way of calling for people and and an easy way of identifying and easy way for Tibetans to sort of find that. I'm not sure, again, though, as to how much of that is necessarily carried out into the Tibetans and exiled community or not, right? As to whether that brought us to eat more Tsampa or not, or to somehow identify with that or not. And I'm not sure. I mean, I was, my wife and I were talking about that recently as well, as to you know, we seem to, although we didn't grow up eating tsampa as much, we seem to really, really like it now and would easily look at getting tsampas about two, three times a week. We often assume that a food that unites people or is held up as a cultural symbol would have some connotations of positivity or even be romanticized as something delicious and irreplaceable. But another assumption is also destabilized when Nima breaks it to me that as a child, eating sampa was not exactly a pleasant experience. But deliciousness is not what matters to him, or even a priority in his current quite elaborate sampa-making home experiments. There's another kind of more philosophical point to this exercise that involves roasting barley in his kitchen. On video, I got to see Nima's many elaborate appliances that he sourced to make sampa including some pretty cool vintage popcorn makers. The experiment is elaborate and sometimes enjoyable, but the reasons for doing it are not commercial. And in explaining his larger motives for it, Nima reminds us of the stakes of lost food, especially for a community in exile. One's not going to get rich by doing this, so there's not really a commercial viability in this, at least with the Tibetan community as such. But I do see an importance of introducing and making accessible some authentic food. And the other aspect of motivation for me is seeing it also being lost, if you will, even in our elders. There's also the reality of Tibet itself being inaccessible for Tibetans. As an ethnically Tibetan, it's not easy. Tibet itself is not accessible in terms of practical and actual reasons. I cannot get a visa to travel to Tibet anymore. In more recent years, some Tibetan foods have found new relevance in the West as they're marketed as health foods that are low on the glycemic index, for example. I asked Nima about the politics of this kind of wellness repositioning for someone like him who's interested in tracing the historical. I think one has to be careful in a sense because there's an exploitation that goes with it. And so sometimes, and I see this sometimes even with Tibetans, right? And, you know, they'll talk about how Sampa is a great health food and try to sell that as such. And I think that's not necessarily right. But the fact that I'm not sure if there's anything that's necessarily good. It's just in moderation, right? Too much of Sampa is not going to be good as well. I will discuss the colonization of foods from the global south by the global north in greater length on another episode of Bad Table Manners. But for now, Jamyang and I speak more about what it looks like when what is essentially a food of survival becomes seen as sexy. I find it irritating, but <laughs> I don't have a big complaint against it. I, I guess I accept it 
within a certain level of inevitableness because the way things are globally, not just Tibetan food, even like Buddhism, something very philosophical, well-developed, they try to adopt it, package it yeah. in their own fashion and sell it as mindfulness. So if they can do that through a philosophical school of thought, which is very otherworldly, highly complex, then no wonder they can do this too. Food, which is already like a something consumable, right? right? They turn everything into consumer right. products. So I'm not surprised at all. Like with many foods from the global south that are appropriated by the global north, there is an imagination that they're timeless, stuck, and the antithesis of innovation. This image may be what sells, but it is, of course, deeply problematic. Jamyang tells me more. Some of the things that they come up with, these are terms which you actually look into it, they have no meaning other than just for like a brand value. Because sometimes it's Tibetan food and for us it's just a food. Of course, it happens to be a very uh, food which enabled us to survive on the plateau. But we don't like use words ancient. Like these are all put upon us by external or let's say right. non-Tibetan. The idea that I think this kind of subs- kind of ties into a larger notion about Tibet that people have, which I think is a hangover from colonial period as Tibet as something ancient, something frozen in time, which is not true at all. Because if you look at, into Tibetan history during the 6th, 7th century, Tibetans were engaging in cultural exchange all the time. In fact, much of our cultural or religious corpus comes from India. And then not only that, okay, there was a period of where we fragmented and then got cut off from the outside world, but then still there were exchanges happening. So the idea that Tibet is something ancient, pristine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is purely, I think, Western yeah. projection upon us. Tensho Gyatso, the creator of Simply Tibetan, is also a political activist who believes the food can play an important role in the Tibetan struggle for autonomy. Many of the recipes on Tensho's blog are from her own kitchen. Others are from friends. Sampa is fairly front and center as expected. She tells me how it's not just a Tibetan stable, but also a food that's great for protests. I've spoken to some of some Tibetan former political prisoners and others who say in Tibet, you know, if they plan to go for a protest, they make sure they have a good meal of tsamba before, because then it stays with you throughout the whole day. You know, you, you don't get hungry. I meet my third and final guest, Jamyang, for lunch in Delhi. Lucky for me, he happens to be passing through. Over endless cups of tea, he told me more about his life, the politics of Tibetan exile, and the place Tibetan food has in the story. I'm a pure exile Tibetan, like in a way, by pure I mean I have never been to Tibet and I grew up in exile. I, I went to exile Tibetan schools Then, like most Tibetan exile students, I went to pursue higher education like college, university in Delhi. And then I uh, spent a couple of years, eight years, nine years in, in the US studying and then came back here. And I still have family here in India family. My parents were born in Tibet. I was curious as to when Jamyang first started using the word exile and when he first encountered it. As a child, I guessed, he confirmed. This brought up an interesting point. When Tibetans are speaking in English, they often use the words refuge, refugee or exile to describe their state. But in their own language, they use a word which means to flee from oppression. And in this case, that means Chinese colonization. There are differing views among Tibetans, however, as whether to resist the Chinese occupation 
or whether to find a compromise in order to live with it and then eventually rise above it. As occupation is resisted in overt and subtle forms, in the Tibetan community, the idea of home is always being constructed. I asked Jamyang to tell me more about his idea of home, with particular respect to India, where he grew up. Then I always felt home is in Tibet, where we will go back eventually. Now, when I went to the U.S., then you miss India. You miss Indian food. Then you realize that, oh, that place is also my home. But that home is in a very, let's say, depoliticized home in a way. Jamyang says that the stories about Tibet, especially told through his parents, are fairly nostalgic. And food, unsurprisingly, has a lot to do with how his mother particularly imagines and reimagines Tibet in her narratives. Now she no longer cooks, she's pretty old. But she still, once she has like enough amount of cream collected from the milk, so then she cannot help but like make butter from it. Because she's like, oh, I have to do something about cream that I have accumulated. Right. It's all over the kitchen. Yeah, it's yeah. all over. So she, so she uses this Tibetan uh, milk churner, which uh, we call it dongmo. So you churn it. It is also used to make Tibetan butter tea. So it's a wooden cylindrical thing. Uh, once you have taken out the butter, you have, you're left with the cheese. And then it has to be slowly heated they become brittle and dried. And then she doesn't use the butter. She now melts the butter to make clarified butter. Ghee. Mm. So, and then she makes uh, yogurt the way she used to in Tibet. And then, yeah, zamba. And uh, yeah, so in a way, she still retains her nomadic roots to this day. Earlier, Nima and I had spoken about what happens to the idea of authenticity, especially when it comes to food for a community in exile. Jamyang echoes Nima's views, asserting that the creation of authenticity is somewhat of a low priority when life itself is in flux. I really don't think authenticity was a concern because they, Tibetans, in a way, are pretty practical people, right? So they just did whatever they had at their hands, make mm. do with whatever they had. So my mother's first recollection of Tibetan food is when they arrived in Patankot railway station, they were wearing these Tibetan leather chuvas, uh, like woolen chuvas. So my mother always jokes, like, those Indians must have thought, like, these barbarians have arrived suddenly at our gates. So, so but then people were very nice. So they, they, so when they were waiting for the train to take them to, I think, Dalhousie or somewhere here, from Patanagot here, so they were waiting at the railway station. So the Indians, local Indians came and gave them rice and dal. But then Tibetans, my parents, they had no idea what to do with these things because they had never seen rice okay. or dal. Yeah. So they said, my mother still says, we just threw it, threw it mm. on the railway tracks. Mm. They had no idea what to do. Mm. But then through the exile years, my mother learned to make dal. So there's this very old monk who was pretty well known in our village. He goes to everywhere. And he says, he told me once, your mother makes the best dal. <laughs> so, so eventually, I guess she learned to make dal. Mm. But then I, I don't know whether this is the dal that Indians make Right, Indians would approve less taste-wise because it's a very it's bland, a yes, it's a Tibetan flavor. Jamyang says that Tibetan food has been more influenced by China than India. There's a phrase in Tibetan for when you want to connote a luxurious feast that translates to 18 courses of Chinese food. Jamyang speculates that this came from Tibetan aristocrats who had luxuries and were exposed to many kinds of food. But he reminds me that everyone, from aristocrats to the most humble peasants, ate sampa. We have been influenced by Chinese in this regard. So people joke that 
when it comes to Buddhist religion, we look towards India, so we imported Buddhism. When it came to food, we looked towards China and we imported their food. And then when it came to our dress, we looked towards Western Tibet. I was curious about the influence of Chinese food in Tibetan cooking and whether perhaps there were any attempts to erase Chinese influences in Tibetan foods in the struggle for autonomy. While Jamyang was not so aware of these attempts, he explained to me that it's not a contradiction to eat Chinese food and then to join a protest against Chinese colonization the next day. Our issue with Chinese is not their culture because Chinese, you know, with Chinese, they have a very rich culture just like India had and China used to be a Buddhist country. And all these things, we have no problem. I, I do enjoy reading Chinese literature whenever I can, even if it's in translation and trying to learn the language as well. These things, I'm totally fine, right? Mm. The cultural aspect. Mm. But then what they did to us as like a colonizer under influence of certain views as a colonial power, those ideas we will always find objectionable and right. we will try to resist. Now, by that logic, now we must stand against colonization, even if it's happening somewhere else. So that is something consistency I want to see within my fellow Tibetans. Following from my earlier conversation with Tencho, I asked Jamyang what role he thinks food can play in political activism. And through this, I learn about a weekly event called White Wednesday. According to Tibetan horoscope, everybody has a birth sign. According to birth sign, you will have certain days which are your good days or bad days. I, I don't know whether it's good days or bad days, but you do have specific <laughs> days which are specific to your birth sign. So Dalai Lama's day happens to be on Wednesday. Mm. So we celebrate something called the White Wednesday. Mm. Where Tibetans are saying, eat Tibetan food, wear Tibetan clothes, speak in Tibetan language. So that is a grassroots movement. We started in Tibet and then spilled over into exile. And then I have seen people doing it in New York City, in Toronto, in uh, Dharamsala. So just for the sake of like doing it, like, let's now explicitly do Tibetan things. Mm. And then you can, on Wednesday, you can choose to have Tibetan to start the breakfast. Suppose you eat cereals usually, but then on Wednesday you will eat samba. Jamyang and I went on speaking about food, politics and activism. And as we did, he reminded me that the potential of food to bring people together has almost everything to do with how it's being prepared. Making food together, I'm reminded, is perhaps one of the most powerful acts of solidarity. Momo making, which really demands it, is perhaps the most potent example. One thing that always struck me as interesting is how when we make momo, of course, in India it has become a street food, right? You see a momo seller there who has a steamer here and he's making momo and then you just buy it and eat it. But what you have missed is the whole preparation part of it which I think for me is as satisfying as eating the momo themselves. Especially in exile, right? Let's say in the US, you go to a gathering and then the whole preparation part itself is the part that you want to enjoy. I mean, of course, the momo themselves are quite good, but the way you prepare it, it's a very communal thing. I cannot imagine somebody who's like preparing like three steamer full of momo by themselves. It's such a difficult task because labor, quite labor intensive. You have to first mince the meat, chop the onions, and then put together and then make the dough and then make little discs of dough and then you have to wrap your mincemeat around it and make it piece by piece and then after you're done wash everything greasy <laughs> container so the typical Tibetan gathering would be like somebody would put on Tibetan music or Bollywood music because this exact Tibetan we are talking about and then you would gather around and then the momo making would begin 
while Jamyang paints this vivid momo-making and eating scene for me, I'm transported. I ask what the topic of conversation may be as people in my imagination have begun eating their steaming hot momos. Jamyang tells me that I probably know the answer. Politics, I ask. He nods in affirmation. And freedom, he adds, after a few sips of tea. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Bad Table Manners and this part of the season where I've explored borderlands, real and metaphorical, that pose a challenge to the monolithic idea of Indian food. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode on Bad Table Manners and beyond. This episode is possible because of all the people who work behind the scenes. I'd like to thank my producer Jennifer O'Neill, co-script editor Vidya Balachander, audio editor Evan Lindsay, researchers Julia Fine and Carolyn Crosby, and intern Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glacier, sound engineer Max Kotelchuk, associate producer Quentin Lebeau, and sound intern Simon Livendar. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Bad Table Manners at whetstoneradio.com.